Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Part 3 Arrested Development. Chapter 8 China Stalled. The rise of contemporary China is one of the most striking and epoch defining developments of our age. A country that could barely feed herself within living memory is poised to become the global economic superpower. China's gone from being an agricultural economy with a per capita output little different to what it was 2,000 years ago, to being an advanced digital economy within the space of 60 years. China's economic output exceeded Britain's in the late 1990s. She then leapfrogged Germany in the early 21st century and Japan by 2011. By 2017, China's total GDP of US dollars 11.2 trillion was second only to that of the United States with its annual output in that year of 18 trillion US dollars. Yet with a growth rate over three times faster than America's, China seems set to surpass even America by 2030. According to some estimates, China's economy is likely to be perhaps even 40% larger than the US economies within the next couple of decades. We're seeing a dramatic shift in the global balance of power. But if you take a slightly longer view of things, what we're actually witnessing is a reversion to the way things were for most of the past two or three millennia. Ever since the Neolithic Revolution, China, with a large slice of the world's farmland and farmers, has been the most populous place on the planet, accounting for fairly consistently throughout most of that time a large slice of world economic output. As a very rough rule of thumb, China routinely accounted for about a quarter of world economic output between 1 AD and 1500 AD, with roughly twice as many people living there as in Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. While Europe regressed after the fall of the Roman Empire, China saw gradual growth in per capita output. Of all the civilizations of pre-modern times, wrote the historian Paul Kennedy, none appeared more advanced and none felt more superior than that of China. China's fertile river valleys were highly productive. Advances in agriculture under the Song Dynasty saw the development of wet rice cultivation, which opened up parts of southern China to farming. Chinese cities dwarfed any of the urban settlements found in Europe at the time. She had an extensive canal system, which opened her up to the possibility of internal trade and travel. For much of the past 2000 years, China was politically unified and administered by a sophisticated bureaucracy. In terms of innovation, China's been at the forefront of technological progress too. China invented printing by the 9th century, building up large libraries. Gunpowder was being used by the 11th century. The wheelbarrow, stirrup, compass, paper, porcelain and silk. These are all Chinese innovations. When Venice's most famous son Marco Polo visited China in the late 13th century, she was in some ways more technologically sophisticated than Europe's most advanced state at the time. Medieval China had invented water-powered machines to spin hemp, something England's Arkwright was not to emulate for half a millennium. 
China operated enormous blast furnaces producing vast quantities of iron. By the end of the 11th century, according to Kennedy, Chinese iron output was 125,000 tons a year, a figure not exceeded by Britain until her Industrial Revolution seven centuries later. China had, in the words of the historian David Landers, almost every element usually regarded by historians as a major contributory cause of the Industrial Revolution in Northwestern Europe. China not only had what many regarded as the key ingredients, she had them centuries before Europe. And yet, takeoff never quite materialised. No matter how much Marco Polo might have marvelled at the wealth he found in the imperial courts of the Far East, in per capita terms, Chinese output per person had hardly increased at all over a thousand years. Even in 1500, when per capita output in Italy was roughly back to where it had been in Roman times, it was hardly higher than subsistence level in China. In fact, in all sorts of ways, not long after Marco Polo's visit, China seems to have gone into reverse. Per capita output peaked under the Song in the 10th and 11th centuries and then fell, not only when compared to Italy, but in absolute terms. By the 16th century, China was probably poorer than she had been in the 11th. Why? Because for all her early gains, the parasitic in China soon came to smother the productive. It was, according to certain contemporary Chinese academics, all the fault of the Qing. Everything in China, they suggest, was going rather well until these Manchurian interlopers showed up and established their own dynasty. This Qing conquest theory, if you like, if it's to be believed, suggests that one bad ruling dynasty, which ruled over China from 1644 to 1911, accounts for the great divergence between China and Europe. It's easy to see why some might find this account appealing. For a start, it fits a nationalist Chinese narrative. Foreigners from Manchuria are to blame. But if the Qing are painted to be uniquely bad, does that not reinforce too the credentials of China's current Communist Party, who can claim to have tidied things up after the Qing, sorted out the chaos that followed and put them right? And perhaps there is something in this theory. Qing emperors did indeed make a succession of catastrophic choices. They presided over a parasitic state that weakened the productive and put China even further behind the West. But one thing that this Qing conquest theory overlooks is that the Qing were not a uniquely disastrous dynasty. China had started to stall long before these Manchurian interlopers took over in the 17th century. If one wants to point the finger at any one dynasty of destructive outsiders, one should perhaps start with Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis, who conquered China in 1279. This Mongol invasion brought death and destruction to China on an epic scale. Output fell from the peak it had reached under the Song, and by 1290, a decade or so after the conquest, there were reports of large numbers of commoners selling their children into slavery to meet the extortionate tax demands of this elite. The ruling Yuan dynasty, from 1279 to 1368, that lived off the harvest of Han Chinese farmers, 
might have been Mongolian rather than Chinese in origin. But China has proved perfectly capable of producing her own homegrown parasites. When these Mongolian overlords were eventually driven out, the ethnically Chinese Ming dynasty from 1363 to 1644 proved equally overbearing. Huan, Ming or Qing, each of these different dynasties tended to preside over China in a similar style. The ethnicity of the emperor might have varied, but the machinery of the Chinese state that sustained them remained in many respects the same. A vast hierarchy of officials raised taxes, issued orders and orchestrated official business. Tens of thousands of scholar officials and lesser functionaries, each entitled to live off the proceeds of farmers, held sway. Individual emperors and dynasties might have come and gone, but except for the occasional brief, often bloody, interlude, the mandrinate remained the same. And it was this mandrinate, more than any particular dynasty, that parasited off the Chinese productive. They sought monopolies consistently down the centuries to ensure that officials were able to reap the proceeds of production. Officials set the price of commodities. Merchants were registered and taxed. Peasant farmers were heavily taxed to the point of having a subsistence existence. Any surplus was taken away from them. Almost all areas of economic life were controlled by the Mandarinate. Under the Ming, wrote the French historian Etienne Balzas, no private undertakings nor any aspect of, private, of public life could escape official regulation. There were, quote, clothing regulations, a regulation of public and private construction and the dimension of houses. All were regulated. There were state monopolies on salt, iron, tea, education and the use of the printed word. China might have famously invented silk, but it was from its role in carrying this precious cargo that the Silk Road, that elongated trade route that runs between East and West, gets its name. Yet for most of the past millennium, the production of silk in China was controlled by the state, with each household expected to pay a silk tax. China was able to produce water-powered textile machines in the 14th century, but she never produced a Richard Arkwright, whose water-powered machines fueled England's early industrial takeoff. The compass guided not Chinese ships into European ports, but Portuguese and Spanish vessels on great voyages of global discovery. China achieved a precocious style and standard of porcelain production in the 16th century, but she never managed the kind of mass production of what Europeans called China, which, for example, Josiah Wedgwood achieved in the 18th century. Paper and printing might have been Chinese inventions, but there were precious few new publications produced in China to add to the sum of secular knowledge. China might have had a unified hierarchical administration run by a well-educated Confucian bureaucracy, but they didn't preside over progress. On the contrary, China failed precisely because she was presided over by these surplus-sucking innovation-stifling parasites. The Chinese Mandarin state expropriated and oversaw, regulated and repressed. It took over any activity that seemed to be lucrative, prohibited whatever it couldn't control, fixed prices and extracted bribes. A class of omnipotent bureaucrats produced rules to govern every aspect of commerce, trade, production and indeed life itself from the cradle to the grave. Under the Song there had been a market economy in rural areas with millions of tenant farmers. Under the Huan 
the Ming and the Qing, they became hereditary serfs. Both the Ming and the Qing banned overseas trade. In 1432, an imperial edict prescribed the construction of ocean-going ships. Between 1644 and 1683, the ban in foreign trade was made total. After then, it could only be conducted through a single port, Guangdong. Trade, when allowed, had to be conducted through guilds, which were prohibited from competing with one another. China's Mandarin not only closed China off to trade, but to new ideas. Scholars were persecuted for failing to stick to the approved scripts. China became a cultural and intellectual homoestatic state. By the end of the 19th century, China's population of 400 million was toiling to support a parasitic elite of about 7.5 million, or 2% of the population, who consumed almost a quarter of total national product. Despite all the initial promise, parasitism prevented China from taking off. In the mid-20th century, China was as poor and underdeveloped as she had been a thousand years before. The idea that China only started to stall in the 17th century is perhaps attractive for contemporary commentators wanting to believe that somehow the loss of momentum was only momentary. But the evidence suggests otherwise. China had started to divert from Europe much earlier than those who blame it all on the Qing allow for. 11th century China under the Song rulers was a richer place than doomsday England under the Normans. Yet by the time Emperor Huang Hu founded the Ming Dynasty in the late 14th century, England's per capita output had already overtaken China's. Precisely which set of parasites should shoulder the blame for China's ruin is open to debate. That they ruined her is not. After the Communists declared victory in 1949, China might have been free from predatory outsiders. But for the next 30 years, she was at the mercy of internal autocrats or worse. Attempts to order Chinese society by top-down design, great leaps forward and then, of course, via the catastrophic cultural revolution, caused famine and catastrophe. It was not until the late 1970s that China's potential, so long enormous, started to be realised. Whether or not China has truly freed herself from internal autocrats who restrict and deny her her potential is very much an open question. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress vs. Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.